Coming to you live from a barbecue shack near you, it's the SEC Slow Smoke Podcast. We've got the sweet tea, the white bread, and a whole lot of slow smoke takes lined up. So put down your turkey burger, turn up the volume, and grab your hog, because it's about to be on. Oh, yeah. Now, say hello to your self-proclaimed food and sports experts, the utterly enthusiastic Holt Smash, and the one and only Tinder King of Memphis, Mr. JB the underscore Brooks. And now, here's your host, always full of ship, Alex Bullship One. Welcome back to the official SEC Slow Smoke Podcast. I'm not Alex. I'm Holt. Alex is on his way back to beautiful Atlanta from right here in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, fortunately, could not be here with us tonight. Uh, came home for Thanksgiving. Glad we got to see him. And uh, we all ate some awesome food. JB, what was your favorite Thanksgiving food you had this season? This Thanksgiving season? Man, that's tough. But I have to go with the uh, sweet potato casserole. That I had. It was a perfect blend of uh, cinnamon and sugar and uh, marshmallows on top. Like, it, to, to me, I, no mushrooms. Just, no, no mushrooms. I don't know who the hell puts mushrooms in it. Is that really a real thing? <laughs> no, I, I guess you don't remember, but I guess on the last podcast, I, I kept trying to say marshmallow, but I kept saying mushrooms on the No, I get it, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised if some bozo did put mushrooms in theirs. I mean, people love their fucking mushrooms, but. It wasn't that, but, uh, and also there wasn't any pecans in it too, thankfully. So I was able to eat the sweet potatoes and not die from it. Yeah, I'm definitely, my favorite was also sweet potato casserole, but mine's, mine's did have pecans in it. Uh, that's how my grandmother makes it. And it was pretty amazing. I actually just finished up the leftovers, uh, about a couple hours before I recorded this podcast. So, um, do love me some sweet potato casserole. I made like I can always think about this, but like I always kind of want to make it like just randomly, just see how good I can make it. I don't know, <laughs> but um, anyway, so um, on today's episode, we'll be recapping uh pretty much all of Rivalry Week and everything that went down. Those some crazy games, some wild finishes. Um, you know, some fans are happy, some fans are pissed about what happened. Um, and we got some coaching fires that we'll definitely hit on. Um, we'll talk about some potential candidates at those places and we'll talk about some coaches that dodged a bullet, at least for now, um, at least for the time being appears that they'll be back for next season. Um, so we'll talk, we'll talk about that a little bit as well. Um, um, just to kick things off, um, you know, I guess we'll just go chronologically. We can talk about the egg bowl first. Um, not just cause my favorite team won and it was great. Um, I was also in attendance, uh, but just cause chronologically it's the first one. So, um, JB, what stood out to you about the 2019 Egg Bowl besides Elijah Moore pretending to pee in the end zone? Uh, to me, it was just, you know, the back and forthness between the teams. Uh, Ole Miss, you know, went down 14 nothing early, and uh, they really rallied. And uh, I would say uh, ever since State went up 14 nothing, I mean, Miss, Ole Miss kind of outplayed Mississippi State those last three quarters. But, to, you know, Mississippi State made enough plays – I think to uh you know come away with the victory, 
and you know they they really were just clinging clinging at the end. I mean, I think Matt Luke, you know, if they had gotten, you know, that t- last touchdown without that stupid penalty, I mean, I really think he should have you know considered going for two. But he said in his post game press conference that he wasn't going to go for two. But you know, you're the road team and you're the underdog, and uh, you know you just you just scored. You're playing pretty well at that point. I mean, I think why not go for the win. No, I definitely agree. And um, to me, this game really came down to one thing, and that's that Mississippi State was able to run the ball and Ole Miss was not. Um, coming into this game, Ole Miss had probably one of the more dynamic rushing offenses in the country uh, with John Rice Plumley and Jerry Neely and uh, the stable of running backs they got there. Um, but uh, Mississippi State's defense did a really good job of slowing down the running game. And, um, you know, obviously Colin Hill was able to kind of a big game and um, – you know, kind of be like a steady force for the Mississippi State offense, which was not really too dynamic. Uh, Schrader only threw for like 108 yards, so um, most of the damage came on the ground. Um, I thought, but really, the um, the killer for Ole Miss. You know, obviously, everyone remembers the you know the post game celebration or the you know post touchdown celebration, but uh, turnovers really killed Ole Miss in this one. They they moved the ball pretty well through the air for most of the game. Uh, really had a chance to control the field position, but um, some fumbles really hurt him. And um, it was kind of a big deal in this game. You know, like you stated, Mississippi State got out to a 14 nothing lead. Ole Miss comes back, ties it right before halftime. State gets a score um, in the third quarter. Uh, and that was pretty much it until the, you know, the final seconds of the game when uh, Matt Luke makes the call to bring in Matt Corral, uh, who's obviously more of the thrower. Um, you know, due to Rice Plumley, uh, John Rice Plumley not being able to really get anything going on the ground, um, and uh, he came in and he led him down the field, uh, threw an interception on the first drive, uh, came down the field and got him in the end zone on the last drive. Uh, just unfortunately, dumb, selfish uh, penalty. That's kind of the story of the game by Elijah Moore, um, trying to duplicate the um, DK Metcalf dog urinating in the end zone. Bad timing. Um, yeah, definitely just kind of a selfish move there and really uh, cost his team, forced his uh, kicker to kick a long extra point. Uh, kicker who's really struggled all year in Logan. He ends up missing it that uh, uh, got Mississippi State the win. Yeah, I mean, that, that piss and miss will, you know, will live forever in infamy for uh, Ole Miss fans and for Elijah Moore. Like, he'll never be able to live that down. I mean, no matter where he goes, you know, in the state of Mississippi, he's always going to be remembered for that one play because, you know, it goes from a, uh, you know, a a chip shot extra point to a 35-yard field goal, essentially. And and like you said, Logan had struggled all year. I think he was 11-19 going into that extra point, too. Like, that was his stats. And that's not really the kind of stats you want in a crucial, you know, extra point to tie the game to push it to overtime. No, definitely not. And um, but that being said, uh, it was a pretty physical game. Uh, there was a lot of hard hitting. Um, I thought both teams played with a lot of emotion, like you expect in a rivalry game. Um, and I mean, I think you really just have to give a lot of credit to Bob Shoot um for really putting together a good game plan to slow down that Ole Miss rushing attack. Uh, Ole Miss was able to hit some plays through the air, and this actually surprisingly was probably Plumlee's best game passing, um, of the season. Uh, but they still opted to take him out um, due to, you know, that Mississippi State defense being able to uh, slow him down. And, um, you know, those uh, those um, suspended players from Mississippi State on defense really have made an impact for them when they've played. Um, Willie Gay forces a 
had fumble in this game, and Marcus Murphy had the interception of Corral late in the game. So, um, you know, you just start to think, like, how different Mississippi State season could have been if those guys would have been playing all season. But um, it is what it is, and that's just how it is. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll get into the uh, the coaching, um, I guess – not impact. What's the word I'm looking for? The carousel. Yeah, well, we'll get into more of the coaching carousel, like, I guess, later on. Uh, this game was definitely um, had a huge impact on that for both coaches, and uh, we'll get into a little bit more of that um, later. Uh, but next, we'll move on to the next game chronologically, which would be the Missouri-Arkansas game. Um, neither one of us got a chance to watch this game because we were both at the Memphis-Cincinnati game when this was going on. Um, and man, I gotta tell you something. I'm actually really glad I missed this game. I'm. I, it did not look good. Like I'm actually really happy that I did not watch this game because it it may have been the worst game in the SEC this season. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the stat lines, I mean, this was just absolutely ugly. I mean, if you want to go by you know team stats or the game or you know just you know regular you know box score stats, I mean, Joe Lindsay he made his first start of his career, the fifth quarterback uh, to play for Arkansas this season. He finished ten of twenty six for seventy five yards, two touchdowns, but no picks. So you know, not not horrible, not horrible, but definitely not good. Uh, of course, Kelly Bryant didn't play in this game either. He sat out. Um, don't know if this is, has anything to do with his implications of trying to rest for the NFL draft, or if he's just you know still hurting or or what. But he didn't play. Uh, Rakeem Boyd had a pretty good game, you know, twenty one carries, ninety five yards. But but like you said, this was just a really really ugly game and. Honestly, I didn't want to watch this game to begin with, and I mean, if I had to watch it, because if I wasn't at the uh, you know Memphis Cincinnati game, I definitely would have watched it. But I think I I agree with you. I'm I'm glad that we I didn't have to see it. Yeah, and obviously, um, you know, Chad Morris had been let go. This game also had some coaching carousel um, implications that you know obviously we're going to get to later. Um, there really isn't much to talk about in this one. Um, Arkansas kind of kept it close, and you know Missouri didn't necessarily play well, but they were able to get the win in the end and get to six and six. Which even though they're not going to a bowl game, you know six and six still just looks way better than five and seven in my opinion. Five hundred. It just it it just makes you feel like at least a little bit better. Exactly. They finished the season winning as many games as they lost. But that being said, we will be moving on um, to another not very interesting game uh, for a different reason: (laughs) the South Carolina Clemson game. Um, you know, I mean, it it went about like you'd expect. Um, Clemson's defense continues to be dominant. Um, absolutely, um, took away pretty much everything for South Carolina in this one. Um, only 174 yards of total offense for South Carolina. Um, most of that coming through the air, and Trevor Lawrence just was a monster. Threw for nearly 300 yards, three touchdowns, no picks. Um, you know. Basically, 40 carries for uh, 211 yards was the Clemson offense. So they really balanced and um, won this game pretty handily. Yeah, they did. And uh, another thing about Trevor Lawrence, he led this team on the ground, too, with uh, 66 rushing yards, which is more than anyone else on the team. So, I mean, Trevor Lawrence really carried the load for uh, this Clemson team uh, in that game. But, you know, I think, uh, in all honesty, it, it looked like Clemson, almost, even though it was a big rivalry game, just by the by the score it was, like, they really coasted. I mean, this Clemson team could have hung up more points if they wanted to. And, you know, they, they I think it was early in the fourth quarter they got their last score, and then Dabo just caught off the dogs then. But, I mean, this was just – we knew going into this game this was going to be ugly. Like, I mean, South Carolina didn't, you know, have a chance in hell. He even went home. 
And another another crazy thing that came after this game, I don't know if you heard the breaking news, but I don't know if you want to call it breaking news, but uh, Jake Bentley did announce today that he is going to, or not announce, but it's assuming he is going to announce uh, tomorrow, but the reports are that he is going to be transferring away from South Carolina. It's going to be a grad transfer. So that's another uh, kind of a big loss for South Carolina too. But overall, it wasn't a good day for South Carolina. Uh, There's some big changes coming up in Columbia this offseason, and Will Muschamp has a lot of work to get to. Yeah, definitely. And um, definitely sucks for South Carolina. Um, This has not been a fun few years with Clemson uh, getting as good as they've been and South Carolina kind of taking a step back. Um, But that's just kind of where we're at right now. And Justin Ross and T. Higgins are two really talented receivers for Clemson and really fun to watch. Um, That's just another thing I took away from this game. And um, I guess moving on to the next one, um, another SEC-ACC battle. Um, Georgia and Georgia Tech. Um, this game was kind of interesting for maybe a little bit of the first quarter. Um, or first into, half, yeah, yeah, maybe into the first half. Um, Georgia's offense is very uh, not exciting, even against bad defenses. Um, but luckily their defense is just ridiculous. Um, but Georgia was able to get the win, 52-7. to, to seven. Uh, They were able to hold um, Georgia Tech's quarterback – Five of 20 passing for 40 yards. I'd say that's pretty good. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, like you said, uh, this Georgia offense is not spectacular. I mean, they did finish with 500 yards on this Georgia Tech defense, which, I mean, let's just be let's just be fair. That's not a very good defense. But uh, they, their defense, though, is spectacular. And, I mean, it's it's the best in the conference and arguably one of the best defenses in the country. I mean, that that's why Georgia is 11-1. I mean, they, their, their defense has carried their team this year. Uh, the offense, you know, has been subpar, and it definitely has to be better if they want to win a national championship. But first, I mean, of course, they still got to get by uh, LSU next weekend. But, you know, just looking at the game, I mean, they took care of business in the second half. I mean, the game should not have been as close as it was, you know, early on. But, you know, eventually, you know, they turned on the Jets and were able to, you know, have a big third quarter and pull away. And then weren't able to look, you know, we were able to look back and just uh, kind of look forward to next week. The biggest concern I have, though, is is the health of DeAndre Swift. I don't know what the latest updates are, but, you know, Georgia badly needs to have DeAndre Swift healthy, especially with, you know, Pickens being out for the first week next weekend against LSU after the big fight he had in the end zone. Yeah, I was going to bring that up as well. Pickens uh, getting into it with a Georgia Tech defensive back um, was suspended for throwing a punch or multiple punches, I guess. And it's going to have to miss the first half of the SEC championship game, along with Swift, as you mentioned, being banged up in this one. So really concerning um, going into next week for a Georgia offense that, you know, definitely has been lacking for playmakers this season. And, um, you know, it'll, it'll, we'll get into this more on the, you know, obviously the preview podcast for the SEC championship game. We'll have a lot to talk about there. Um, but Georgia's offense continues to be a concern. Um We'll just leave it at that. Um, you know whose offense is not a concern right now, even though everyone thought that it would be? Would be uh, the Kentucky Wildcats. Absolutely. With Lynn Bowden. Um, just <laughs> continue to not throw the ball at all and still put up incredible yardage on the ground. Um, today, or I guess Saturday, um, they were 40, 40 carries for... 517 yards and six touchdowns and only threw the ball twice the whole game. 
in an absolute rout of their arch rival Louisville. Yeah, Lynn Bowden is just an absolute monster, and and I actually believe he is a junior, so he does have another year of eligibility if he decides to uh, come back next year, which would be remarkable, you know, if he were to come back. I mean, I think honestly he's going to probably go to the NFL draft, and he should because he's absolutely earned it because he's shown his dynamic playmaking ability. You know, in three assets in the game, I mean, he can catch balls, he can run the ball, and he can even throw it if he needs to. So, I mean, he's he's definitely going to be a weapon at the next level. I mean, he's a pure athlete. And this was just an amazing uh, job by, you know, Mark Soups, the coaching job. You know, they blew out their arch rival Louisville, you know. It wasn't even really that close. And I put a tweet out today on Slow Smoked on our account about how remarkable the job Mark Soups had done. And then I get blasted being that we're idiots for even saying that it was a remarkable job like what are you some stupid fine bomb caller like come on this is, you got to give credit where credit's due like mark Stoops' job that he's done this year has been nothing short of remarkable you know to finish with a seven five record with you know your fourth string quarterback if you want to call it with lynn bowden being your quarterback the rest of the year and essentially not even throwing the ball really just running out of the wildcat and the defense is knowing what's about to happen, but you, they can't stop it because they're able to uh, mix it up enough to confuse the defense. I mean, that's just an unbelievable coaching job. Yeah, it really is. And a great individual season by Lynn Bowden. Uh, really shows a lot of selflessness, um, you know, to basically do this. And, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, I wouldn't say jeopardizes his NFL career at all, but definitely um, really not be able to show what he can do um, you know, running routes and catching passes and everything like that um, going forward. Uh, but still just to be like a great team player like that and move positions and to be so successful um, this season, uh, it's been a lot of fun to watch. And, um, you know, the fact that Louisville like knew exactly what was coming like the whole game, but they still couldn't do anything just really says a lot about uh, Kentucky and this, you know, this running game and, uh, they have some really talented running backs to go along with them, too. Obviously, Christopher Rodriguez, Kvasi Smoke, and A.J. Rose um, all continue to, uh, you know, make big plays as well. So it isn't just him, but, you know, obviously him taking the snap and making the decisions um, has been really impressive. Um, and probably the m- most important game um, and probably the most exciting game of the weekend was, the, of course, the Iron Bowl, um, Alabama and Auburn. Um, we had um, two pick sixes. We had a kick return for a touchdown. Um, we had a very crucial uh, too many men on the field penalty. Um, what what was like the biggest moment in this game to you? I mean, shoot. I mean, I don't know. Even know which one to pick. Uh, to me, it has to be the the first. Uh, I don't know. Actually, you know what? I'll go with this one. The biggest moment to me was the 100-yard pick six for Auburn uh, that bounced off the, uh, you know, off the off the ass of the Alabama receiver. I forgot which receiver Najee was. Najee Harris. Off of Najee Harris's ass and then right into the Auburn defensive back, and he returns it for 100 yards. Right then I knew that, that there was some uh, magic happening in Jordan-Hare. I mean, that's there's been so much magic that's happened for Auburn in that series, you know, in Jordan-Hare when they played them. I mean, 2017 and then, of course, 2013. Uh, I don't understand. <laughs> like, it was, it was absolutely incredible. And another thing that stands out to me is the discrepancy in total yards. I mean, if you look at it, Alabama absolutely dominated. They're not absolutely, but they, they dominated Auburn in that department with 515 yards, and Auburn was only able to muster 354 yards. And Alabama also had the time of possession in their favor, too, but, you know, 35 to 24. 
So it's not like Alabama played bad. And, I mean, no offense to Auburn, but to me this is a story of uh, Alabama making mistakes and Auburn capitalizing on them. And more or less that uh, Alabama more – I would say Alabama lost it more than Auburn won it. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, you know, you look at Alabama's offensive numbers and they look almost perfect, like almost perfect, uh, except for – uh, the two interceptions for Mac Jones that both got returned for touchdowns. Right. Um, you know, you take those two plays away, and, I mean, Alabama wins this game easily. Um, and the field goal. Yeah, and then obviously the missed field goal as well. But you just look at the stats. Mac Jones, you know, throwing for over 330 yards and four touchdowns. Najee Harris with close to 150 yards rushing. Um, and then Mac Jones actually had another 32 yards rushing. Um you know, they were really – they moved the ball really well. It's just those two interceptions by Mac Jones. Um, field goal before halftime that they got the extra second on. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, Auburn obviously got the extra second to kick that field goal before halftime. And, Huge on interception. Yeah, and um, not only did they get the extra second, but they were still able to snap the ball even with uh, one second left. They just snapped it as soon as the referee blew the whistle um, and were able to make a long field goal, which seems almost impossible um and actually ended up winning the game by three points so yeah Auburn Jesus is alive and well um on the plains he is I mean they he was definitely looking after Auburn that day I mean Alabama I mean was clearly the better team on the field that day but you know what they made a few mistakes and Auburn you know like I said they capitalized on those mistakes and were able to come away with a victory you know against a uh honestly a better opponent so I mean credit to Auburn I'm not trying to disrespect Auburn at all Auburn, you know, played really well. They kept the game close. They gave themselves a chance to win at the end, and that's exactly what they did. Yeah, and uh, moving on to uh, probably one of the uh, more lopsided rivalries in the SEC, the Tennessee-Vanderbilt series. Um, Vanderbilt's won, what, three, four in a row? Yeah, Vanderbilt's dominated it. Before Tennessee uh, finally bounces back, beats Vanderbilt 28-10. Big game for 901 native. Um, Eric Gray uh, had close to 250 yards on the ground, including a 90, was it 95, 96 yard touchdown run? 94 yard touchdown run. So, what what really stood out to you about this game? Uh, the rain. Uh, this is just, you know, horrible playing conditions. Uh, they had two separate delays in this game. Actually, no, we can almost count. Uh, no, we'll go with two. But uh, there was two separate delays in this game. This game lasted, I think, four and a half hours total. Uh, they played on a really wet, sloppy field. Uh, not really good play on both sides of the ball. Obviously, when you watch, Tennessee was definitely the better team, but they weren't able to do on offense what they had been able to do previously. I mean, it pretty much limited the passing game. They had to turn in the ground game. And uh, Tennessee was able to establish themselves in that department. And obviously, they uh, they shut Vanderbilt down on, on defense. Uh, they spotted Vanderbilt three points early with a uh, interception on the first possession by Garantano. They got three there, but... Overall, Tennessee's defense played well. Their offense, you know, scored enough to uh, keep themselves, you know, a distance away from Vanderbilt from them having a chance to uh, make a game of it. But, like I said, it was just a sloppy game. Not really much to see and not much to take away from it either. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to say about that game. Yeah, Um, I mean, it, it wasn't exciting. And then we will move on down to the state of Florida, um, where the Florida Gators, uh, completely, uh, dominated Florida State and their interim coach. Um, I didn't really get to see a lot of this game. I believe you did. Um, what what was kind of the story of this game to you? Um, it was really the play of uh, 
uh, Kyle Trask. I mean, he had a really good game. I mean, he threw for uh, 343 yards uh, with three touchdowns. Uh, pretty much flawless. I mean, and it's just, you know, that was really the big big story for me, just how well uh, the offense played. And, and, I mean, the offense has really been slowly but surely coming together for Florida over the course of the season. I mean, they've gotten much better. And uh, I'm sure you heard that Felipe Franks is transferring from Florida after this year. I think he already knows that the season riding on the wall that Trask is going to be the starter next year. And uh, he's, you know, looking off for greener, better pastures. But that was, to me, the biggest thing. I mean, Florida State tried to keep it interesting, you know, in the first half. They uh, were able to, uh, I think, I think what happened, yeah, they tied it up in the end of the first, near the end of the first quarter, made it interesting then. That was really the closest it was going to be all all game. After that, Florida, you know, had a really big second quarter, put some distance in the game, and after that, they were just in cruise control. Man. Patriots almost recovered that onside kick. That was crazy. Um, yeah, Kyle Trask definitely was the top performer in this one, just looking at the stat sheet. Um Really stands out to me though is that Florida was not able to run the ball at all. 20, 25 carries, seventy seven yards. Um, looks like pretty much all their damage was done through the air, but luckily uh, their defense was not able to, um, or their defense was pretty much able to control Florida State's offense. Yeah, I mean Florida State's <coughs> offense. I mean you know it hasn't been that great all year, and I mean you'd think it would be better you know with Kendall Bryles running the offense, but you know he's still you know. He has a lot of new regimen to his name. He's going to be a hot commodity on the offensive coordinator market, you know, with, you know, him losing his job most likely unless, you know, the coach that comes in retains him. But, yeah, like like you said, I mean, they did struggle. And then moving on to probably the least competitive game of the weekend, not the game you would have expected. Uh, the LSU, Texas A&M, <laughs> uh, LSU puts up a 50 spot on old Jimbo and uh, the Texas A&M Aggies, um, and A&M only able to put up seven points in this game. Uh, this game was over in about five minutes. Um, it was 31 nothing at halftime. Um, how was LSU able to just absolutely dominate this game like they did? It was motivation. It was all about motivation. <laughs> I mean, you I, like I said in the preview, LSU's had this game circled on their calendar since last year, ever since what happened in Kyle Field last year, you know, with the way the game ended and, you know, the bulletin board material that the team provided and then provided after the game. I mean, they, they've had this game circle for a long time, and, and Ordron didn't light it up either. Like, I don't know if you remember, but he had Joe Burrow playing uh, almost midway through the fourth quarter in this game. I mean, he did not let up. He, uh, I don't know if I would call it running up the score, but he let him know that, you know, he was, he, he was there for business, and it was a business uh, game for LSU. And also, not just in that aspect, but also to impress the uh, bold committee, too. Like, LSU wants that number one seed because, you know, if you're the two or three seed, you're going to have to play, you know, one of the other better teams. If, if LSU's a two seed, they're more than likely going to get stuck with Clemson. I don't think they want to get stuck with Clemson. They'd rather play a weaker four seed. So, I mean, and also their defense came out and played a phenomenal game, too, holding A&M to a little over 100 yards. I and mean, A&M's offense is definitely – not that bad either. So, I mean, it was a statement win for LSU in this game. Yeah, it definitely was. And um, as impressive as the offense was for LSU, um, it's been impressive all season. Uh, it was really good to see LSU's defense dominate like they did after that second-half performance they had last week against Ole Miss, um, or I guess two weeks ago. But um, 
it was really good to see them kind of come out and just absolutely dominate this game. A&M's offense had no shot. Uh, they were not able to do anything on the ground or through the air. Kellen Mond was 10 of 30 for 92 yards and three interceptions, uh, zero touchdowns. Um, they were 26 of 72 on the ground, so uh, complete and total domination by the LSU defense. You know, we expected it from the offense, but to see the defense come out and play like that was really impressive. Yeah. And, um, we needed to see it, too, because, I mean, the defense has been, you know, inconsistent all year. But they finally put a, together a really good game against a solid offense. And if they can play like this, you know, lights out defense in the playoff, I mean, they're the best team in college football. Like, we, if they play that kind of defense, you know, in the playoff, I mean, they're going to win the national championship. I mean, let's just put it as simple as that. Like, well, you know their offense has it, but if they play that kind of defense, you're going to be walking away national champs. Yeah. And, um... How do you feel if you're A&M after this game about Jimbo and kind of, I guess, your future? You know, I'm, I'm really honestly not going to be that discouraged. I mean, LSU came out for blood in this game. I mean, I think A&M fans knew it, you know, that they were going to have a tough game, a tough matchup against a really highly motivated LSU team that, quite frankly, wants revenge. And, two, they're trying to impress the, you know, the bowl people, you know, the college football playoff committee. Like, they are the best team in the country. And, you know, I, I – with A&M, like, you still have a lot to look forward to next year. You're going to have the majority of your uh, starters on both sides of the ball back. And, I mean, I actually think Kellen Mond will probably be back next year. So you're going to have a really experienced team that's going to be able to take look to take the next step and compete in the West. I mean, you could be looking at a uh, nine-win team minimum, maybe ten wins. You know, I haven't even looked at the schedule. But A&M, I think, definitely is going to be a big-time contender in the West next year. All right, and moving on um, to the coaching carousel, which is my favorite thing to talk about in the SEC just all around. Um, we're just going to play a little game. Uh, I didn't tell you about this beforehand, but we're just going to play a game called Did They Make the Right Move? And we're just going to go through uh, each of the teams, and we'll talk about each situation specifically. But I want to know, yes or no, did they make the right decision? Did Missouri make the right decision by firing Barry Odom? Yes, they did. Why? Because... Uh Look at the schedule they had this year. You had eight wins at minimum that they should have won with this schedule, and they were only able to win six. And you also have to look at the regression that Missouri's had the last couple of years, too. Yes, granted, uh, Gary Odom did take him to a 7-5 record <laughs> two years ago after a 2-5 and or what was it, maybe a two and five start. He was able to uh, you know, right the ship and uh, have a you know, big second half of the year tw- you know, two years ago. Last year, you know, they finished, I think, what was it, 6-6, six 7-5 six, with uh, Drew Locke. You know, lost that bowl game as well. He's lost two straight bowl games, by the way. But this year, they had the schedule lined up for them to uh, win 9 or 10 games, and they weren't able to do that. And, you know, the way the season, the team collapsed in the second half of the year, too, I mean, that's just the writing on the wall, too, and that's a major red flag. And I think, on obviously, uh, the time, and you know, has run its course for Barry Odom. Right. I mean, back-to-back seasons where they really had a lot of excitement. It looked like everything was aligning right for them. Um, and they were just not able to do either th- anything either season. Uh, they were a very average to maybe slightly above average team uh, when they, you know, could have been a little bit better than that. And um, anytime you have back-to-back disappointing seasons, um, that's just always going to bring a lot of unrest. And obviously he... You know, as far as coaching tenures go, he lived he lived a long life. Um, he got his opportunity. Um, he, you know, got his four years, and he just really wasn't able to show uh, that there was really any identity to his coaching style, that he was 
uh, going to develop a winner. Um, and I mean, honestly, like how many times is he going to have situations like he's had each of the last two years? Um, you know, the first, you know, two last year with a great quarterback, um, and a really solid running game, um, this year with, um, another pretty solid quarterback and then just an absolute, you know, a joke of a schedule, um, and then to go six and six and, you know, you know, seven, five, eight and four last year, whatever they were. Seven, five um, last year. You know, it's just, it's not good enough. I mean, there's no way around it. It's disappointing. It sucks. Um. You know, and fans just aren't going to deal with it. And we all feel bad for Barry Odom. I'm sure he's a great guy. He's coaching his alma mater. Seems like a very, you know, well-respected, you know, good guy. But at the end of the day, it's Results about matter. it's about winning. I mean, you got to win games. They've had plenty of opportunities, and um, they haven't gotten it done. And they've been disappointed. They've been a disappointing team. And, um, you know, if you want to coach in the SEC, you got to show that you're worth something. That's just kind of how it is. You do, and Barry Odom's definitely going to land on his feet. He's going to get a pretty good gig next year. I mean, he can get a good Group of Five gig if he's if he's patient. But honestly, I mean, why not go coach? Uh, you know, with uh, Justin Fuente at uh, at Virginia Tech and replace Bud Foster. I mean, that'd be a good gig for him too. I mean, Barry Odom's going to get a good good job next year. I mean, I'm not worried about him at all. He's going to land on his feet. Yeah, and obviously Barry Odom coaching. Um, under Fuente in the past at University of Memphis once upon a time. Um, and next up, we have the Ole Miss Rebels uh, earlier today announcing that they have parted ways with Matt Luke, uh, who was told in the middle of a recruiting visit, apparently, uh, that he would no longer be the coach at Ole Miss. Uh, is this the right move or the wrong move for Ole Miss? Yes, it is the right move. Uh, when you look at the course of the last three years, uh, they went 6-6, six and six. Five and seven and four and eight. When you regress like that, I mean, you have to fire your guy. I mean, I know Matt Luke inherited a really bad situation, and uh, you know he had a school that had you know sanctions, you know, and also postseason bans. But uh, they they got worse every year that he was there. And I will I will admit that this season, even though they finished four and eight, they did look better on the field. They made some improvements, but the record still stands that they finished four and eight. They lost the Egg Bowl on in a really embarrassing selfish play that's really going to like tarnish you know the program's image for a long time and I mean I don't know if that was an emotional decision you know by their new AD but at the same time like you had I think the move had to be made I think Ole Miss has to strike out right now and you know try to take advantage of the you know the newcomers they have on their roster and have a new coach with you know a young mind that can uh, come in there and really take the program back to you know a bowl contending program like they expect there. All right, and I guess, I don't know if a official announcement has been made, but it seems to me as if Will Muschamp would be back at South Carolina as of the recording of this podcast. I believe that he will be returning. Um, is bringing Will Muschamp back for 2020 uh, the right decision? No, it is not. And I am disagreeing with some people that have said that it is the right decision to bring him back. I don't think it is. I think South Carolina needs to cut losses while they can because – I mean, look at what he he ran that Florida program nearly into the ground. Uh, currently, South Carolina is being ran into the ground by him. I mean, they've gotten worse uh, this year. I mean, this is a one of, one of the worst seasons he had. And you know, of course, you know when he was at Florida, he went uh, I think four and eight in one of his seasons there. And uh, then the next year, he barely won. You know, enough to get to a bowl. I mean, I 
I don't think you're going to expect much more than mediocrity out of Mushamp in South Carolina. I mean, if that's what your if that's what their expectations are, you know, then great. I mean, Mushamp's your guy. I mean, if you're happy going six and six, seven and five every year with an occasional losing season, then he is your man. But if you want to do better and win, you know, eight or nine games on the reg and go to bowls every year and maybe occasionally have a nine or ten win team, then yes, you bring in somebody else. I mean, it just depends what you know Ray Tanner's mindset is. Seems to me like you just want to fire everybody. It does. It does. <laughs> um, I, I just want to get that in before I say this one because I think you're going to think keeping him was the right decision. But seems like uh, as of this recording, Derry Mason will be back at Vanderbilt uh, going forward. Is this the correct decision? Yes, I do think it's the correct decision. Um, I, I'm Let's just say this. I'm a big Derek Mason backer. He has taken the Vanderbilt to two bowls in the past four years. I mean, I've reiterated this in multiple podcasts in the in the last few weeks. But I mean, Derek Mason is not the problem at Vanderbilt, and then the culture is not the problem at Vanderbilt. He had a huge rebuilding job this season. He lost a ton of seniors off last year's team, and most in the majority of them, a high majority of them, played in the two deep. I mean, that's that's really hard to replace at a school like Vanderbilt, which he doesn't get top you know twenty five recruiting classes every year much less top 50 classes. So, I mean, you're only setting yourself up, you know, maybe to have one big year every few years at a place like Vanderbilt. And last year, you know, it was that one big year where they got six wins and got to a bowl. And then, you know, of course, a couple of years ago, they made it to a bowl in 2016. So, I mean, come on. I mean, you got – what, what, what much else do you expect at Vanderbilt? You're not going to go to bowls every year at that school. I mean, the biggest expectation to me is to compete for a bowl – Every few years, I mean, you're it's Vanderbilt. You're a private school in the strongest conference in all of college football. What 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 more can you expect? And also on Saturday, uh, Mississippi State announced that Joe Moorhead would be returning for the twenty twenty season. Um, they uh, the quote said that they were impressed with how the team played um, and prepared for the Egg Bowl. Um, what what is is this the right or wrong decision to bring back Joe Moorhead for twenty twenty? You know, this is one This is one of the tougher ones for me, but I think it's the wrong decision. I think they should have uh, cut bait with Joe Moorhead. I think he's a – I mean, what most Mississippi Saints fans will say, he's just not a good fit for the program. I mean, he's not a good cultural fit. Uh, he's obviously an offensive-minded guy, but his offenses have not been able to perform up to the level that he wants it to. Uh, you know, the, the recruiting is not bad. I, I will admit that his recruiting is not bad. But the teams are just so undisciplined. And the last two years, like, they've gone from a Mullen team that, you know, doesn't didn't play totally disciplined, but they were a lot more disciplined than these Mullen coach teams. And also highly penalized, too. I mean, it seems like Sade has coughed away a few games in the past couple of years just from penalties alone. And, you know, that's just not what you want, you know, a school like Mississippi State that has to play really disciplined football to win a lot of games. Like, they have to grit and grind their way to victories. And if you're going to, you know, screw around and not play disciplined football, that's not going to, you know – win at a place like Mississippi State. So I think it would have been a good move to, uh, you know, cut Bay with Joe Moorhead while you can because slowly but surely he is running that program, the program that Dan Millen built, you know, into the into the ground. And it's going to be harder to uh, bring it back up, you know, at a place like that. Yeah, I think I think I kind of agree with you on that. And I'll jump in a little bit on this one. Um, but I'll just say that if you were going to fire Joe Moorhead – if Matt, let's just say hypothetically that the whole situation with Elijah Moore doesn't happen, Matt Lee goes for two and gets it and the game's over. If you're going to fire him then, but you're not going to fire him now, then I just really question the decision-making process. Because 
he's he's either good enough or he's not good enough because like basically what happened at the end of that game should not determine whether or not you fire him or not. Like I mean that it just doesn't make any sense for you to say like oh well Ole Miss did something stupid and lost themselves the game, so Joe Mori gets to keep his job. Like I just don't understand that like at all because right. I, I firmly believe that if Ole Miss would have won that game, Joe Moorhead would be fired right now. Yeah, and, and, and then it would still be Ole Miss. And if that's true, then that really just says way too much about how they're basing their decisions. I mean, to me, it's pretty obvious. Everyone can see it. Joe Moorhead has not been a good coach. Um, he's supposed to be an offensive-minded guy. He had the number one defense in the country last year and still lost five games. To, you know, Basically, all he had to do was make the offense not terrible, and they would have won 10 games going to a New Year's Six Bowl last year, and he couldn't do it. Um, and then this year, um, you know, lost some games that, you know, at the end of the season don't seem so bad in Kansas State and Tennessee, but really, really feel like they could have easily won both of those games if they had just been somewhat prepared, um, especially the Tennessee game coming off a bye where they just seemed like they had no clue what they were doing and had no preparation at all for that game, um, you know. And then obviously Kansas State turned out to be pretty good this season. Um, had a nice season, beat Oklahoma at home, but still a game I think you expect to win at home. And um, just getting absolutely blown out by Auburn, LSU, A&M. Uh, that's say Auburn, Alabama, Auburn, LSU, and <laughs> A&M. Basically all four of those games you were completely just non-competitive. Like the game was over as soon as it started. Um, and, you know... I'm not saying that, like, I'm all for, like, moral victories or anything like that, but when you're just getting blown out and not keeping games close, like, it's just hard to, um, it's just hard to get behind that. I mean, it's just, you don't really see a lot of, like, progress, like, he just hasn't done anything in 28, you know, or 20, I don't know, I'm getting my math wrong, 25 games so far as a head coach. Yeah. The offense has not shown anything, and he hasn't shown anything to make me think that he's the right guy for the job. Right, and another another aspect of it is I don't like the idea of firing coaches based off the result of one game, like you were mentioning. I mean, like you said, if Moorhead, if, if Mississippi State had lost the game and Ole Miss had won, Luke would still be the coach to Ole Miss, most likely, and Moorhead would be fired. I mean, I think, honestly, both those coaches should have been fired. I think Moorhead should have been fired along with Matt Luke. I don't think it should have mattered who won that game. Another example from that is in 2016, uh, LSU and Auburn were playing in a game in which uh, Gus Malzahn and uh, Les Miles' seats were thermonuclear going into that game. And uh, Auburn barely, you know, won that game on a very, you know, crazy play at the end. LSU, you know, lost in dramatic fashion. Very next day, Les Miles is fired. And let me remind you, this was in 2016, you know, over three years ago. And this, and guess what? Gus Malzahn, over three years later, is still the coach at Auburn. So that's another example of why you don't judge by just one game. Yeah, definitely not. And um, I guess we'll just go ahead and talk about Auburn right now. But it appears as though Malzahn will be back. Um, you know, I don't think you can fire him after that win. Um, even though the offense wasn't incredible, um, do you think Auburn bring him back? Gus Malzahn for 2020 is the right decision, or you think they should just cut bait and say see you later? Yes, I do think it's the right decision. I think uh, keeping Malzahn was the right move at this time. I mean, you got to see this through with uh, Bo Nix and, you know, the weapons that he has, on the culture that he has established, too. I mean, they had a really solid year. I mean, I, going into this preseason, I had him 9-3, and three, 
as their fin- as their final record. That's exactly what they finished. I mean, this was a really solid Auburn team. I mean, granted, it's not a national title contender, but it was a really competitive team in the SEC and, you know, beat a top-10 team along the way and also had a pretty impressive road victory over at a College Station early in the year, too. I mean, they were competitive in a lot of games this year. I mean, it's not – plus, you know, they were competitive against Georgia – uh, you know, semi-competitive, you know, competitive against Florida and Gainesville, competitive against LSU for a while. I mean, this is not a bad team. Uh, you know, they're eventually, I think they can get it to put it together again. I mean, Malzahn's shown he's capable of doing it. I mean, I just, it's not going to be an every year basis. And I think, you know, the, the way the Nick Saban effect, like every fan, every fan base and every program wants to replicate what Saban has done by being a national title contender every year. But that's really just an anomaly. It's, it's, it's not really easy to do that, you know, regularly in college football competing like that every year. I mean, there's going to be some down years, and I mean, I think Auburn still has some good years ahead with Malzahn if they're patient with him. And um, I guess that pretty much concludes all the coaches that were, I guess, on the... On the bubble. Yeah, on the bubble of uh, being fired. Um, You know, I firmly believe that, you know, if, if Mississippi State had lost and Auburn had lost, that Moorhead and Malzahn would be um, let go, uh, but they are able to squeak out some wins and get to keep their job for another year. Um, so my next question, this was actually a Twitter poll or a poll on our Twitter page today. Um, what is the best opening, uh, between Arkansas, Missouri and Ole Miss right now? Do you think like which one, if you were a hot coaching candidate, um, which one do you think would be the best best opportunity well there's three there's aspects i look at if you go to missouri i don't think there's really as much pressure you're also in an easier division if you go to old miss you got the state of mississippi to recruit in and you got a little bit of a better recruiting base uh, if you go to arkansas you got more financial backing and a uh, rabid fan base that's just eager to support you i think arkansas has got the best fan support and money backing of the three so it depends what i'm looking for but I would probably take the Arkansas job. I think you can still recruit in the state of Texas at Arkansas pretty well with, you know, Jerry Jones, you know, his influence he has in that state, you know, with the Cowboys. I mean, Arkansas is still somewhat of a brand in East Texas. I think that, you know, that uh, profile is still there. They just need the right coach to come in there to uh, really generate some buzz. And that's where I would turn to, you know, someone that has a personality that can bring it up and – you know the rumors I'm hearing. Oh, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get we'll there. We'll get there. We'll get there. But yes, but I would. I would stay on topic. We'll stay on topic. But yes, I would. Uh, between the three, I would pick Arkansas. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that. I would actually. It's pretty clear to me. I think I would have Arkansas number one, Ole Miss number two, and Missouri number three. Not that Missouri's a bad job. Um, it's just I just feel like they have the most challenges of the three. But that being said, they you know like you said, there's less pressure. But I don't think coaches really care about. You know, like, oh, I want to go to school. There's no pressure. That's usually not, uh, you know, what the best coaches would would be thinking. But um, they are in an easier division. Um, But that being said, Georgia has really established itself as, like, the top dog in that division. And Florida, um, you know, is knocking on the door as well. Um, So definitely, you know, not not as easy as it was maybe four or five years ago in the East. But um, still, you know, an easier – than a easier situation than it would be at Arkansas and Ole Miss where you're competing against, you know, Alabama, Auburn, LSU, and then, you know, to a lesser extent, Texas A&M. Um, but, yeah, I think Arkansas is still the best job because, you know, like you stated, um, the fan support is great, you know, uh, due to the fact that there's no professional teams in the state of Arkansas and there's no other 
college football programs in the state of Arkansas either. Um, it's pretty much just the University of Arkansas, and that's it. So uh, they get a lot of love, a lot of support from their fans and from their donors. And you know that they're going to pay for assistant coaches. You know they're going to pay for uh, facility upgrades, things of that nature. All those things are really important for coaches. Um, and then Ole Miss, I think, is actually a pretty good job as well. Um, you know, obviously you are sharing a state uh, with another SEC program, but um, – you know, you're pretty close to, you know, Memphis. You can recruit the whole state of Mississippi, obviously. Uh, Louisiana, Alabama produces a lot of talent as well. Um, so pretty solid, uh, you know. And then Nashville is not too far away either. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, fertile recruiting grounds for Ole Miss. Um, I think, um, you know, I, I think it's a good job to have. I think there's a lot to sell there. It's just difficult because you're in such a good division. I think that's really what holds back Arkansas and Ole Miss, um, you know, for most coaches is, um, is it may be like one of the top 20 jobs in the country for both of them, but you know, they're probably the second and third worst jobs maybe in their own division. You know what I mean? So, um, just really tough to, uh, to compete with. But, uh, that being said, uh, we will move on to maybe some candidates. Um, it's probably the same candidate pool for all three schools, um, but like, I guess we talked about Arkansas a decent amount. Um, but I guess we can just, since we already did start, um, you know, there were some rumors today about, um, a Arkansas jet down in the state of Florida. That is true. Uh, Arkansas did in fact, uh, interview Lane Kiffin today for the coaching position. And let's just be quite frank. I think Lane Kiffin is going to be a candidate at Arkansas and at Ole Miss and, it's really going to be which school gets to him first and which school lands on him and decides, you know, go after him first. Obviously, they're both going to interview him, but I think Lane Kiffin is just eager to, you know, take an offer from either, and I think he'll take the first offer. I don't know if really Lane Kiffin cares which one he gets. I think he just wants one of them. And uh, that would be really big for Arkansas, you know, if they can get someone like Lane Kiffin, like I said, because he would generate a huge buzz in that state around the SEC, and he's an outstanding recruiter too, and Arkansas is a tough place to recruit at, but he would be able to bring in talent to Arkansas, which, you know, the last two coaches, Chad Morris and Brett Bielema, were struggling to do. Yeah, that's obviously um, true. And, you know, Chad Morris was an okay recruiter, not a great recruiter. Um, did a pretty good job, but um, I think Lane Kiffin could probably take him to the next level. I think he get him top 25 classes if he's at Arkansas. Yeah. And more of, just make more of a national brand. Um, I think he'd be able to attract a, a pretty good quarterback, which is what they're really missing more than anything right now. Um, and, you know, they have some talented young players in their team, um, as we constantly mention. Um, so he does have a little bit to work with there. I think Ole Miss, I don't know why, but, like, I just could just see Lane Kiffin as the head coach at Ole Miss, like, so easily in my mind. That's a, that reason. really is a cultural Like, I don't him. know why. Like, I feel like I could just – it just makes, like – so much sense. Joey um, Freshwater would come out of retirement if he went to Ole Miss. Yeah, for sure. He'd be out on the square. <laughs> out um, on the square, then like sneaking into the Grove with a little disguise, you know, four hours before the game to get it in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But uh, that being said, there are, you know, some other candidates as well. Um, I think Mike Leach could potentially be a candidate at Arkansas and at Missouri. Probably not at Ole Miss, though. Lane Kiffin, I think. Could probably be a candidate at Arkansas and Ole Miss, but maybe not Missouri. Um, 
There's you know, one that can there's, fit in yeah, all three. And that, I assume you're speaking about uh, Memphis's coach, Mike Norvell. Correct. Yeah, I definitely think he would be a really good fit in any of those schools. Um, you know, I, I really think that, um, you know, I hate to say it for Alex, but with all the jobs that are open right now, I just find it hard to believe that Norvell is going to be back in Memphis next year just due to the amount of good jobs open right now. Yeah, I mean, Mike Norvell is definitely going to be a top candidate all three of those. I mean, I, I think Missouri, it's arguably Mike Missouri's top candidate is, is Mike Norvell. Uh, I know Mike Norvell has talked to Arkansas in the previous few weeks. I think he told him he was looking at Florida State, and that might be the school that Mike Norvell wants to go to the most. But I don't know if Norvell is going to you know, fall down enough on the list for Florida State to offer him. I think Norvell, if he wants to leave Memphis and cash out, he's probably going to have to go somewhere like Missouri, Arkansas, or Ole Miss. And I guarantee all three of them are going to offer him a lot of money. And regardless, I mean, he's going to be a richer man by Christmas, whether he, you know, takes an extension and a pay raise at Memphis or goes elsewhere. But I guarantee, like, he's going to be – it could turn into a bidding war between those three schools plus Memphis. And, you know, it's going to be a tough decision for Norvell. But, I, I mean, I think he's definitely the top candidate in Missouri. He's definitely a top three candidate at Ole Miss. He might be the number one candidate at Ole Miss for all I know. And he's definitely a top three candidate – at uh, Arkansas. I don't think Matt Campbell is a candidate, honestly, there. I think for Arkansas, it's going to come down between Kiffin, uh, Mike Leach, and possibly Norville. I think it's going to be one of those three there. And then at Ole Miss, I think you could see uh, maybe Willie Fritz could come up there as well. I know Willie Fritz has uh, been a candidate that people like to talk about. Billy Napier might be a candidate. Uh, Lane Kiffin is obviously, and then Mike Norville. I mean, and then another wild card candidate could be Bill Clark. I think Bill Clark could be looked at at Ole Miss as well. So we're not bringing back Hugh Freeze to Oxford. No, not anytime soon. I, but I will say this: um, you know, if a place like Tulane or Louisiana or uh, Memphis were to lose their head coaches, you know, in this carousel, I could see uh, Hugh Freeze, you know, bolting one of those, especially for Memphis, because Norvell would leave a really great situation at Memphis. And, you know, a guy like Hugh Freeze can come in there and win 10 or 11 games, you know, immediately the first, you know, his first year. And then he'll instantly, you know, be a hot candidate, you know, in the following carousel. He'll be able to really propel his career again. So I think that would be a really great move for Hugh Freeze to bolt Liberty for Memphis in the event that Mike Norvell, you know, takes a Power 5 job. Yeah. And uh, are there any other names we need to keep an eye on? Or you think we pretty much – I mean, I know that – Names are always going to pop up. There's always going to be um, And I'm sure, you know, we've only mentioned about four or five candidates. I'm sure someone that we have not even mentioned is going to take one of these three jobs. Um, is there anyone off the radar that you can think about or know about or someone maybe we need to watch out for? Uh, the one I would think possibly would be uh, Brian Harson of Boise, maybe for the Missouri job. Uh, he has some, some connections with the state of Texas. I mean, that would be something interesting. Also, you know, he did – once coach at Arkansas State, and it's not just for Missouri, but possibly for Arkansas too. I mean, I think Missouri is another school that might be looking hard at Brian Harson. I don't know if he would leave Boise, but, you know, Chris Peterson eventually left them, and, you know, he's got a good gig at Boise, but, I mean, that would be one to watch for. I mean, one more name I could give you would be uh, Tony Elliott, the Clemson offensive coordinator. I mean, he's been if, – if any of those schools want to go the OC route, but honestly, I don't know if you would because – Obviously, Arkansas won't because they already did tried that with Chad Morris and it didn't work. But maybe some school like Missouri might want to try that if they you know strike out on a few candidates. Yeah, well, 
Um, it's always fun to talk about that, and we'll definitely be keeping up with that going forward. Um, but that's pretty much all we got for tonight's episode, um, unless there's anything else you wanted to add on, JB. Nope, I'm pretty good, but you know what? I'm going to be following this uh, you know, coaching carousel the next few days. Like this is, To me, this is going to be a really exciting week. A lot of times the carousel really ramps up the week in between the last you know regular season week and conference championship week. And if you remember two years ago, Scott Frost's uh, name was uh, linked to the Nebraska job before the conference championship game against Memphis. And then it was reported that he had accepted the job in the middle of the game that he was coaching. So that could come and play, you know, someone like Mike Norvell while he's playing, you know, Cincinnati in the conference championship game this next weekend. Yeah, and uh, it's always fun this time of year. Um, Arkansas fans are already tracking jets and everything, so they are. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a great uh, coaching carousel, and uh, you know we'll definitely be here to talk about all of it. And we'll be back on probably Wednesday night, Thursday morning, um, to give you preview of the SEC championship game. We'll talk about some bowl projections and maybe some places that you can expect your team to be for bowl season. Uh, if your team did make a bowl game yeah. or if your team did make a bowl game, we'll probably be talking about some coaches that might be coming to coach your team. So. Exactly. Maybe one of you, maybe one of the three schools, Missouri, Arkansas, or, or Ole Miss, maybe have a coach by then. Yep. So we'll definitely uh, be talking about all that and uh, enjoying that. And um, we will see y'all uh, next time. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to another outstanding episode of the SEC Slow Smoke Podcast. Be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SEC Slow Smoked. Spread the good word on this podcast like the chili and cheese on your fries. If you like this podcast, tell a friend because there's plenty to go around. Oh, yeah.